waiho i te toipoto, kaua i te toiroa. E te iwi nau mai hoki mai anō ki a te ahikā, ko maraia rakurakua hau. E haereaki nei, this week we are looking at the links between Indigenous peoples, as demonstrated in the Tri-Nation Indigenous Theatre Extravaganza that is Honouring Theatre, a touring festival of works written and performed by Indigenous representing Canada, Australia and Aotearoa. Initiated by talks held in Perth between theatre houses of the respective countries in 2004, Honouring Theatre kicked off in Canada in 2006. For the past two weeks, Aotearoa has hosted, ending its run in Manukau, Auckland, this past Friday. A few weeks ago, I was with the Honouring Theatre crew when Manuhiri Tuarangi, the visitors from overseas, had just landed in Rotorua. The jet-led Canadian-Australian crew, as well as everyone else, were welcomed onto Kiaro Marai, the marae of playwright Media George, who co-wrote He Reo Aroha, the Māori work in honouring theatre. After the pōhiri, which for the travellers was their first, and a kai, Jamie McCaskill and Carly Kōpai, stars of He Reo Aroha, presented a koha to the home people, thanking them for their hospitality. The Manafenua of Kiaro Marai, Komatua, Bob Young, then led us on a tour of local landmarks. Uh, my name's Bob, and I've been given the job of um, telling you some of the stories about the place, uh, just to um, make you a bit, fam- a bit more familiar with the way we operate around here. 
So uh, we're just about to go up to our local primary school and outside the gate uh, is a stone set in the ground. It's got quite a story to it and so when we get there I'll tell you all about it. So in the meantime I just follow my leader here. And, uh, <laughs> That'll be me. <laughs> and uh, away we go. What are those ranges of hills up around over there? That's, that's, uh, we just call it the Hora Hora Bluff. Yeah. Uh, the hill in the background is the Hora Hora Bluff. Hora Hora is short for the, the, the full name of it is Te Hora Hora Inga o Ngaringa o Kahu Matamomoi. The, the story is this man, Kahu Matamomoi, um, was a very important person in his time and he was uh, journeying in this uh, district and uh, uh, <clears throat> a small event happened and he became tapu. That means his body was uh, affected by a, a sacred uh, pronouncement. And in order to clear the, the get rid of the tapu to make him uh, uh, non-affected by it again, uh, he washed his hands in a stream which is at the north end of the, this mountain that you can see in front of us. Uh, that stream was called Waikarakia. Karakia means a prayer uh, or an incantation and uh, uh, the stream got its name because of that event. So the full name, Te Horohoroinga, that refers to the washing, the Ongaringa, uh, the washing of the hands of Kahumatamomoe. And so the mountain in front of us is called Horohoro for short. Uh, it's a very prominent bluff looked at from this side. Uh, it's flat top. Uh, it's about a thousand feet or 300 meters above where we are now. Uh, and the ground on the other side drops away nearly as sharply as it does on this side. It was the ancestral home of these people, their, their refuge, uh, the citadel if you like in times of danger uh, and the uh, <clears throat> the boast of the, the people was that although they took part in many battles they were never defeated, never driven away from their uh, their refuge of Horohoro. So we're um, just about to leave the marae. Just before we do we have a church here which started off as an Anglican church and uh, as years went by, people of other denominations also use it. The Roman Catholic Church mm. and the Ratana Church are the main other users. But people from other religions can use it as well. And next to it is our uh, community cemetery. And so we'll get, carry on up towards the school. Did you fellas all catch that? <laughs> I'm going to test you later. <laughs> Ten questions. <laughs> so, by community cemetery, do you mean the hapu exclusive? Yes, the cemetery is more or less hapu exclusive, but um, in-laws of a hapu member uh, can, can bury here as well. Uh, we also, people who have been cremated, their ashes uh, can be deposited in the cemetery as well. Although cremation is not a very popular custom amongst Māori, uh, it's becoming more so, and uh, we have accepted that uh, th those uh, people who have been cremated, ha who belong to the hapu, 
have the right to have their ashes put in the cemetery if they wish. So Bob, when you have a tangihana, you have the service at the pa, then do you come over here? Uh, yes, where the service is held depends uh, to some extent how religious the person was. If they are a staunch member of the Anglican Church, then the service might be held in the church. But far and away the most common thing that happens is that the service is held in the meeting house or out in front of the meeting house if it's a fine day and there are a lot of people more than can fit into the meeting house. We have it there. And then after that, the um, body is brought over to the cemetery and buried there. Now I understand you're a school teacher. Used to be in my uh, degenerate youth. <laughs> <laughs> and as we're walking up here to Horohoro School, did you teach here? No, never, haven't taught at this school. I wasn't a teacher for many years. I've been a farmer ever since. And I have a farm. Uh, my farm is just next to the school. That's my house you can see over there. Oh. So that's where you brought up all your kids? Uh, the first two were born before we built that house but the uh, oh sorry the first three and uh, the last one uh, was brought from the hospital to that house uh, soon after we built the house You married a local wahine? Yes, yes, my wife belongs here or belonged here and uh, she died some years ago now, this first building we're getting close to used to be the school teacher's house. Um, but years ago, the school teachers, uh, or began with one teacher, lived in Rotorua and came out each day. And after that, uh, it wasn't used as a residence for the teachers. So the, um, <clears throat> the local people uh, asked for asked the education department for the... Uh, land and the house to be handed back to the hapu and uh, since then the building has been used as a base for the local kohanga yeah. So how many tamariki go here then? It varies um, between about 12 and up to 20 and uh, some of them are local children some come from out from Rotorua each day there's a bus that brings uh, probably most of them actually come from town uh, they're all children of members of the hapu, children and grandchildren of uh, people who went to their primary school. And what's the name of the hapu? The hapu is called Ngati Kea Ngati Tuara. It's a double-barrelled name. Uh, Ngati Kea are the descendants of a woman called Kero, and Ngati Tuara descendants of a woman called Tuara. Uh, and that's why the marae is called Kiaroa? Yes. Um, Kiaroa is the principal one. Uh, Kiaroa, the woman, was the wife of a man, Ngātaroirangi. He was the tohunga on the Arawa canoe coming from Hawaii. And uh, she was, Kiaroa was his wife. Uh, and that is one of the main lines of descent for the hapu. So how many kids go to the school then? Been around about 60 uh, in recent years. Uh, 
Many years ago, the roll got up nearly to 100, but it's been around 60 uh, most of the time. That's not bad for a country school. Yes, once again, a lot of the children come from town, from Rotorua. So people are making an active choice to send their tamariki here? Oh, yes. Yes, uh, uh, the, um, a lot of their parents went to the school. Uh, the role would be about half Pākehā and half Māori. The, um, the Pākehā children are the children of uh, Pākehā people who live in the district now. So this is quite a big community then? Yes, it's not really. The um, role of 60 might indicate that it's, there's a fair population here. But as I said, a lot of the children come from Rotorua, uh, come in by bus. The, there are only a few families still living here of the uh, larger number who lived here when the land development scheme was uh, it was operative. A few straggling down up the road still, so we'll wait a bit for the till I tell you the story of the stone. All right, uh, everybody. Uh, just behind me, there's a small stone set in the ground, and uh, the story about this stone is that originally it was. Uh, located away down at the south end of this bluff that we've uh, just been looking at, uh, high up on the bluff. In, in the old Māori days, that was the main route between the district around here, Rotorua, and uh, over to the Waikato, to the west. Uh, people would go around there rather than climb over the high range that uh, you came over in your bus on, on your way to Rotorua. Now, the, um, there was a, a woman who had supernatural powers. Her name was Hiningawari. And uh, she, uh, what's the word, cast a spell, if you like, on the stone, um, set it in the ground there. And the idea was that if strangers with um, nasty intent started coming along, uh, the stone would identify them as being dangerous and would give a warning to all her people living here in this district. And the warning would be in the form of thunder and lightning and strong winds and very stormy conditions. Uh, and that would uh, warn the people of approaching danger. The <clears throat> So that stone was there and apparently it did its job. I don't know whether it did or not. Uh, we don't have any evidence for that. However, uh, in recent times, the man who was the leader of the people here, this was about 1930, uh, when the local people uh, came back to live in this district, um, to take you back in, in, in time a bit, when the first Pākehā came to New Zealand, Pākehā is the Māori word for um, foreigners, white strangers, Europeans, or various other names like that, some of them not very complimentary. And uh, the, um, <clears throat> when they first started coming, the local people uh, gradually became involved in the money economy, as it was called, and uh, there weren't too many ways of earning a living around here because it was way off in the backwoods. And so many of the people left seeking employment wherever they could find it. 
So the district gradually became depopulated. Well, in the end of the 1920s, um, one or two politicians thought up an idea of trying to uh, get the Maori people involved in farming, uh, in modern-style farming, and so what was called a land development scheme was started, and the people, some, some of the families, came back here. So from 1930 onwards, new houses were built, and farms developed, small dairy farms, they came back to live. So it was about that time that the leader thought it would be a good idea to get this stone from where it was, away around at the end of the bluff, where nobody ever went at that time, bring it around here to the gate of the school. And in previous times it had been the, the gateway, if you like, the entrance to the district. So he was setting it up at the gate of the school, and in place of being a warning for strangers, the idea was that visitors to the district could come and placate the gods, if you like, in old terms, uh, by placing a little bit of greenery at the foot of this stone and, uh, and uttering a wish or something of that sort. Now, back in the original where it was, the um, supernatural lady Hiningawari had planted some flax around the stone. And so that flax uh, represented her hair, uh, te makawe or Hiningawari. And the stone itself, because she had knelt down to plant the stone in the ground, the stone was called Teturi, or the knee of Hiningawari. So this little stone here is the knee of Hiningawari, and there are a couple of flax bushes left uh, representing her hair. So that's the story. You'll be able to read it in, the, in a much better version than I've just given you on the, on the thing there. Uh, and uh, you're free to grab a bit of a branch or a twig or something, place it at the foot and uh, um, mutter a wish or whatever you like, depending how superstitious you are. Uh, and that's the point of the story. So thank you for listening. Ko te reo o Bob Young no Horohoro. Kaumātua Bob Young leading us on a tour of Horohoro landmarks. After another meal, one of the native Canadians made an offering of her own. Tobacco for us, while most cities and towns are regulated with bylaws about smoking in public places, we are actually constitutionally protected to be able to burn tobacco if we choose to for ceremonial purposes. We don't often, but on occasion we do. And, um, but a more common use of tobacco now is uh, for the purpose of prayer, for the purpose of honouring. Um, and um, traditionally before it's, it was commodified and commercialized and then filled with all kinds of stuff to make it addictive, um, we grew it uh, really for an actual medicine. It was often used as a poultice to um, heal wounds. Um, it was used as a digestive aid. I think now we couldn't possibly use the tobacco we get for that purpose. It would probably actually make us really sick. But um, the original tobacco... Um, is actually quite healthy. And um, we, of course, we couldn't bring it into the country, so I had to buy some today. <laughs> and, of course, I couldn't find actual original leaf tobacco, so it is store-bought. But what, uh, what I would like to hand out to everyone, I'd like you all to just take one, is a tobacco tie. Each tobacco tie is a prayer. 
and um, it is for you to take with you to keep in a place that is special for you, however that, whatever that means for you. Um, and you can use it in a, as long as you use it in a good way, it doesn't matter how you use it. Ultimately, um, I mean, it's something that you can pray with if you, if you choose to pray. It is something that you can um, hang on to and just to remind you of this, of honoring theater and Native Earth. Um, when you feel at some point in the future, if you've used it to pray that it has outlived its purpose, the appropriate way to dispose of it is to burn it in a fire, preferably an open fire, but if you have a fireplace and you don't have a, an outdoor fire, um, that is also okay. Um, otherwise, you can keep them. Some people keep them for many, many years. Um, and they are, some people will offer them. That's another thing that you can do if you are in a sacred place and you want to give thanks to where you are. You can leave it on a tree branch or place it on the ground. And so because it is one of our most sacred herbs and we were able to at least acquire it here, I, <laughs> I, I want to be able to share this with you. And I will just bring this little sort of makeshift basket around and you can each select a prayer tie. Prayer tie or tobacco tie, same, same difference. <laughs> How about I start with you? <laughs> I would like to offer a song. Um, this is a song. It was written by a friend of mine named Pura Fe. She's Tuscarora from North Carolina. And um, the song is called Our Land, Our People. And uh, I offer it to you as we are here on your land. So this is, we can flip the meaning and say, your land, your people.
Sometimes it's been called the anthem, and sometimes it's been called the community, the community gathering song. Like it's it sort of has. Are you familiar with Yulali? There's three Native women that sing a cappella, traditional songs, traditional and contemporary songs. You you may have heard of heard of them and just not known because yeah. you know again those indigenous circles are so the way they are, and especially musically like Pura Fey, who wrote that song. Um, was one of the founding mothers of that uh, that group, Yulali. And she is a very good friend of mine. Her cousin is my best friend, and um, I've known them for many, many years, and I've had the opportunity to sing with them many times and record with her and with Jennifer, her cousin as well. And um, And that song, you know, the first time I heard it, it, it made me cry, and I had goosebumps, and... I got to record it with her in North Carolina, where she's from, with about 30 people from her community. Um, and it was such a powerful experience in that room, singing that song with everybody, all those voices. Like, it was just so grounding. And, um, I, yeah, I, I've, I've only sung it a couple of times publicly, um, I know that I kind of have, she's given me sort of standing permission as long as I acknowledge where the song comes from. But I, I feel like it's such a special song that it's reserved for really important times. And for me, being out there on the marae and being here and um, having an opportunity to, uh, again, there's a bridging happening of land and our relationship to land and um, and we are, you know, we believe we are the land. We are made up of this earth. And we say, you know, in North America, we don't, we didn't come from anywhere else. We're not from the Bering Strait. We're not from Asia. We are from yeah. here. And that's what our stories say. And sure, there was trade and sure there was intermixing probably long before, you know, it was ever documented. But our creation stories say we're from here. So I think for me, that song is just it's a, a pronouncement of that I am here of this land and you know that and so for me it was also an offering um, to you guys being here on your land saying I understand that connection I understand this this relationship that you have here we have the same connection there Michelle St. John, one of the actors in Annie May's movement, talking about the specific cultural role tobacco plays for Native American and Canadian Indians. We'll hear from her later. I'm Mariah Rakaraku, and you're listening to Te Ahikā. Our programme tonight looks at the similarities of Indigenous experience between Māori, Native Canadians and Native Americans. So what you have there are the 
honouring theatre hoodies mm-hmm. that the whole troop seems to be getting. What does it say? It's, it's, it's like some writing on the inside of them. Inside the hood it says, happiness ain't a destination, it's a way of travelling. You know what, I've just noticed these are blinking huffer. That's a huffer symbol. Yes. Oh my god, how upmarket. <laughs> oh my god, I so thought they were like budget hoodies. <laughs> no way, not for honouring theatre. And they're not even. Oh my god, they've got like half a sponsorship or what? And with this fantastic art on it too. Now what is that? That's a design that seems to be on like um, the back right shoulder. Yeah, it's the same as the design on the posters. Actually, Amanda Hariaka just explained about it to me today, but uh, there's some of these lines. Actually, this represents the topography of each of the three countries involved in the tour. Mm. Uh, and then there's some um, Maori and some Australian, some Canadian Aboriginal symbology in here. So these triangles are ours, and these dots are Australia's, and this swirl is Maori. And so they kind of mixed up the aesthetic from the three different... Nice. Yeah, it's super cool. On the 29th of December 1890, 500 troops of the U.S. 7th Cavalry massacred 300 men, women and children of the Lakota Sioux at Wounded Knee. 83 years later, Wounded Knee became the site of all that built-up hurt when leaders of the American Indian movement, AIM, led a group onto the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota on the 23rd of February 1973 protesting against government mistreatment and demanding ratification of treaties. Here's some archival footage. The Uglala Nation is at a crossroads. Russell Means, one of the founding members of the American Indian Movement, talking in 1973 at the time of the Wounded Knee occupation. can change the course of history for Indian people all across the nation. Sometimes there has to be violence to force the white man to listen. You leaders, you chiefs, have to be right there with us when we do it. But we seize wounded knee. Either we force the federal government to kill us all once again like they did 83 years ago at wounded knee, or else they come out and they negotiate and meet our demands. Bill Means describes the happenings on the first day. Well, during the night, the first night, when the takeover began, the shots were fired between, initiated by the BIA and, of course, responded to by members of our caravan that had went in there. Then we started to decide to block the roads because if the BIA and all the feds were going to come out from Pine Ridge, then we had to have some kind of control of the situation. Initially, like I said, we didn't know we was going to be there. But after the elders made a decision, not elders, but everybody that was in the meeting at, at the church at Wounded Knee on the 27th of February, 1973, we didn't limit people from talking or what their opinions were. We, everybody got to say what they wanted to say regarding why we were there, trying to draw attention to the treaty issue, trying to draw attention to the corruption that existed on the reservation. But it was decided that we would stay there 
then we had to secure the perimeter and secure the area. And remember, we had families that lived within this small town, both right outside of the town in terms of government housing, and then people who traditionally lived there, including white store owners who owned the Wounded Knee Trading Post. So immediately we secured the trading post because they had weapons in there that they were selling, on, you know, just as a gun dealer. And so we went in there and secured those weapons. We had a few weapons with us in terms of the caravan, individual owners. And so then we set up roadblock on each end of uh, the town of Wounded Knee. Uh, at first, extending quite a ways out, maybe a mile out almost, from the town, uh, the perimeter. And also then we had a meeting of all the security, the warriors, the veterans inside Wounded Knee, and we set out a plan. First, we had to secure the store because that's where the food was. We didn't think we was going to be surrounded. We just thought, well, we're going to stay here, camp at Wounded Knee. But then through the night, then more police start coming. They start surrounding us. There was occasional gunfire. And so we had, made the, we had to make a choice that we were going to stay. And then they, in turn, blocked the roads further down from where our perimeter was. So it was kind of a standoff there on the first 24 hours, 36 hours. And then as more and more information started coming to us from inside Pine Ridge, the U.S. Marshals were begin to organize themselves, set up a perimeter outside our perimeter, and then they were calling in FBI from all over the country. And then, as time went on, within a very few days, uh, shipments of weapons, army trucks were seen going up to the Pine Ridge boarding school and entering into the small village of Pine Ridge, and people would tell us about this. So we knew that we ourselves had to put together a plan. So the veterans and others of us, as I said, got together, and we decided to build some bunkers because if they were going to militarily attack us at least we were going to put up some resistance until we were able to put forth the reasons why we were there because we knew ourselves that word was spreading very fast about this takeover of Wounded Knee which in itself in history has been a very significant part of American history often portrayed as the last Indian War between the Calvary and the U.S. always portrayed as a war that they killed over 300 men, women, and children and gave over 20 Congressional Medals of Honor at this massacre. But as we know, growing up, even in the reservation schools, it was called the war, the last war at Wounded Knee. Bill Means talking about the first day of the occupation at Wounded Knee that took place on the 23rd of February 1973. Anime Aquash is the subject of Anime's Movement, a play written 12 years ago by Yvette Nolan and the native Canadian production touring as part of Honouring Theatre.
Starring Michelle St. John, we heard from her earlier, and Graham Murkey. So here's a little about Annie Mae Aquash. She was born 1945 in Nova Scotia of the Micmac Nation. She was pretty high profile in the AIM movement and was constantly dodging accusations about being a narc for the FBI. For years, the FBI was suspected of ordering her killing. Annie Mae's movement follows Annie Mae in the months leading to her death. Hi, my name is Michelle St. John. Um, I'm an actor. I am Wampanoag Nation, and my people are from Massachusetts and Rhode Island. I grew up in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Is there much pressure in playing the role of a real person? Yes, there is a lot of, I feel a lot of pressure. I mean, you know, pressure in... I'll use a different word, responsibility. Um, I feel like every time we tell the story, it's for her daughters, it's for her family that survived her, it's for all of the Native women that need to know that we don't die in vain and that, you know, anime is just one of thousands of women who've been murdered and she she didn't not only did she not die in vain but she won't be forgotten and i think in my career i've had this very strange connection with several women who've who were real people that i've had the opportunity to sort of you know re be involved in retelling their story and every time it's it's so daunting it's so um you know where like I always think where do you start where do I start because oftentimes whether it's theater or film the stories are fictionalized for or at least dramatized so you know you can't for the sake of time and the sake of what you can accomplish on stage or on screen, you condense things, you um, maybe mix a few characters together just to sort of consolidate things. So you have to be able to let go of some of the things that may not be the absolute exact truth in order to tell the ultimate truth, which is the the essence of the person and how you find that in the process is always like, I'm always going, Oh my God, I don't know how to do this. How do I do this? Where do I start? Um, and I, and really it's like a lot of, um, a lot of research for sure. But also I think a lot of like trying to keep that heart and spirit and energy connection open to stuff that I can't, intellectually process mm. because I think those things happen on other levels sometimes. How long have you been playing the role for? We toured this show and anime's movement as part of uh, the Canadian leg of the honoring theater tour um, in 2006. So I, it's been almost two years that I've been involved in this particular production um, same director, same playwright, same cast, uh, fellow cast member Graham Murky, same um, uh, 
core crew and same production company as Native Earth Performing Arts. How long have you been involved in the industry for? Um, I actually started working when I was 11. Um, I started doing, my dad's a singer and a musician. He, um, over the years, has done like thousands of jingles and voiceovers. So he's done a lot of live performance and stuff, but he's also like a studio singer. So you, you hear him more than you see him type of thing. And so I grew up surrounded by music and in the studio and surrounded by people who know people. And so I started working when I was 11 in radio, actually, as my first job was on a kid's radio show for the CBC. And, um, and I, I think I sang the theme song. I, yeah, I sang the theme song for that show. And, and then I started doing jingles myself. Did you get royalty checks for that show? (laughs) No, no royalty checks for radio. Um, yeah, wouldn't that be nice? Um, yeah, you do for jingles and stuff like that, but, um, you know, I don't know. I, the show's not on the air anymore, so I don't even remember if I did, but I was a kid, you know, like the, I'm sure the one check that I got was probably just so exciting. (laughs) I didn't ask those questions, but, um, yeah, I started studying acting. Like I knew even though I was singing and sort of doing the, the radio end of things, I was really more interested in acting. And I knew that really young. Um, so I went to a school that was sort of a performing arts high school, um, had an amazing curriculum and amazing teachers. And I was there for three years and did like almost exclusively theater and music. And, um, before I finished school, I was working in film and, um, and so then that just continued. And I, um, I think I did my first film when I was 17. And what was the film? It was called nine B, which was kind of a, um, kind of a to sir with love meets fame. It was about a, a white, British teacher from England who um, gets this contract to go and teach in northern British Columbia in a really remote area, which was a common thing back in the day just to get teachers into rural communities. And so they would, you know, make this big chunk of change and they'd live there all year round. And, and, uh, you know, the antics that would go on in a small community and the stuff between teachers. This is in a small native community. It was actually a sort of a border town community. So there were native students and white students. And the school was actually, the community was fairly diverse considering. And the show, which, you know, was done back in the 80s, was actually fairly progressive at the time, I think, in dealing with some of that stuff and acknowledging the fact that it wasn't just all white people in, in the North. And, um, and so that turned into a series and then I did a bunch of other, um, film and a lot of television, a lot of Canadian television episodics and uh, other series. And, um, I did a film in 88 called where the spirit lives, which is sort of Canada's rabbit proof fence. It's, it's a film about residential schools and it was the first one of, it was the first dramatic film to, to deal with the issues of residential schools. There'd been documentaries done, but there hadn't been sort of a dramatic feature. And, um, it was a very, very successful film. It, it really kind of opened the dialogue, um, around the fact that residential schools existed. Um, it put native issues, um, you know, not 
not exclusively on the map, but at a really critical time. It was just before Dances with Wolves came out. And yeah, and it was um, just before um, Meech Lake and the Oka crisis. And in Canada, what was Meech Lake and the Oka crisis? in Canada, what happened in 1990 was um, essentially Quebec, the province of Quebec wanted to be considered a distinct society. And they uh, wanted the federal government to acknowledge this. And um, the short version, because I won't bore you with the details, is that Aboriginal people stood up and said, well, you can't be a distinct society before we are a distinct society. So this accord, which would have given Quebec all kinds of sovereignty, um, was actually sort of dismantled in, a, in the legislature, in the Manitoba legislature, by a, an Aboriginal, a Cree a uh, member of parliament in the Manitoba legislature who filibustered and he used all kinds of all the little back rules that nobody remembers of the rules of parliament to to kill the to kill the accord and it was happening right around the time as the Oka crisis which was um basically this little town there was a reserve called uh uh it's a it's a mohawk community just outside of Montreal about a few hours out, outside of Montreal and then there's this little white French town called Oka right on the border of it. And the the mayor of the town wanted to extend his nine-hole golf course to be an 18-hole golf course. And he wanted to chop down these sacred pines, which was a burial site. And, of course, the community rose up. And they were joined by people from all over who came to say no to the golf course and there was a standoff that lasted about 72 days between um, the Mohawks the warriors because they have a warrior society um, and all the people that came to support them uh, against the Canadian army <laughs> and uh, the Quebec police and in the fight in the in the melee of the the beginning of the the heat of the crisis there was a, a Quebec um, officer who was shot and what we all heard through the grapevine was that it was actually friendly fire that shot him, but they would never release the ballistics report. So we figured that would was true, or, or they would have, if it was actually, you know, an Indian who killed him, they would have been happy to spread that. So it was a it was a really interesting time going from sort of 1988 to 1992 politically, and um, where the spirit lives just I think was just like a a bit of a the window opening to because many many Canadians just never heard of residential schools didn't know that such a thing existed and I remember talking to people who were still skeptical once they saw the film like that wasn't really a true story that didn't really happen but but um but you know they were well-intentioned but they were trying to do you guys a favor well you you know whatever yeah thanks for that so we um I think it was an an interesting time to be involved um, artistically in what was happening politically, sort of reflecting some of that stuff. So that was in 19... The, the, Where the Spirit Lives was released in 1989, um, just as the Meech Lake Accord and the Oka Crisis was coming into, into gear. So there was just a lot of attention being paid to native issues and recently actually just before I left the day I left to come here um, we received an apology from the Canadian government for residential for yeah 
Gosh. Yeah. Thanks. How's that feel? You know, we just keep looking at each other going, sorry. Sorry. Were you there? Sorry. I'm sorry. Oh, was that your mother? Oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) It's hard not to be cynical. Um, I think we're all, it, it was quite moving. It was about an hour and a half long. They, they, um, changed all kinds of parliamentary rules and procedures to accommodate the apology. All the leaders of the parties spoke. There was a group of, I believe, 12 native leaders who represented organizations. Um, so they weren't traditional chiefs, but they were people who were on the for- on the front lines of, you know, fighting, fighting on all kinds of levels in all different ways. Um, who were present sitting in a circle in the middle of parliament and who had an opportunity to respond to, um, all four apologies from all the leaders. It was powerful. It was deeply moving. Um, you know, it was, uh, a bit surreal and I didn't expect to be so moved. I didn't think I would sit there and weep for an hour and a half, but, I think, I think what was happening for a lot of people was that, um, in, in the lead up to it, they were interviewing a lot of elders who'd been through the system and they were all so overwhelmed. They were all saying, we need this. Yeah, sure. Words are cheap and let's see what happens tomorrow. But we've been waiting a long time for somebody to say, we know what we did was wrong. And there's something that I think as humans, we need to we need to hear, we need that validation that what we've experienced is not our fault and that the damage that's been done in the intergenerational post-traumatic stress syndrome that has, that exists now and the legacy effects of it for, you know, the last couple of generations who haven't actually experienced it, but are still experiencing it. Um, we all needed to be, um, spoken to and acknowledged and seen and heard in that way. So it was quite moving. So would I be right in assuming that as an Indigenous woman and as a descendant of all of that history, that you bring a lot of that to the role as Annie Mayer Quash? I think, I mean, my family history is... um, complex you know I'm mixed blood like a lot of our people are and um, I have black blood and Jewish blood and I grew up urban in the city in the suburbs I didn't where's your heart where's my heart well you know what I I've never been mistaken for any Lieberman you know what I mean like I I honor all sides of myself um, and I and I don't I don't not acknowledge those sides because I think it's important to, you know, I love both my grandmothers. Um, So what are some of the rituals that you go through to prepare yourself uh, before each performance, given that the role is such a heavy one? um, I personally, I pray. I know that sounds so corny, but I do. Um, And because I've been asked that question before. (laughs) Sometimes the interviewer looks at me like, yeah, whatever, you know, but it's, it's a grounding thing. And I smudge, um, uh, Fitty was fortunate and 
I don't know how the hell she found it, but she found some sage somewhere in Wellington. So, which has been great because I, I couldn't bring it with me. And we smudge with different things, with different medicines. Explain smudge. Smudging is a purification ceremony. It's a cleansing. And it's used um, it's used in prayer as part of prayer. Um, it can be done formally. It can be done informally. But it's it's a for me, it's a really grounding thing it's hard for me to go a day without it and that's what i could smell as i walked into the room yeah this evening. probably yeah because mm. i had smudged before i left and um and so i brought my smudge bowl but i didn't have anything to smudge with when i got here and it'd been two days traveling and i was like what am i gonna do like i gotta do you know so because tobacco is more readily available i was going to um, use tobacco. One of the things we do with tobacco is put it down on the on the earth. We say a prayer and we offer it back to the earth. And um, and I did that too tonight before the show, um, just to thank her and to thank her family and to thank the ancestors for their guidance and for their protection and for their support. Um, and, and because this is the first performance that you've had in Aotearoa of absolutely. Annie May's movement. Yeah, and that was, the, that was the other side of that prayer, which was to you know thank the ancestors of this land for allowing us to be here and for um, you know this amazing opportunity to share stories. It, it just blows my mind. And I think, you know, I was thinking tonight what, a, what an honor and what a responsibility it is to to travel this far and to bring her story and her journey all the way over here. And someone had asked me in Toronto before we left, um, if I, what I thought people here would, would think of the play. And I was like, well, you know, I, it's so hard to know. And I don't know how much people there know about, the American Indian movement or that time period or what's happening now, I would imagine that there is this sort of, you know, indigenous solidarity network that I am aware of that we, to some extent, know some things about each other, but what an opportunity to be able to share stories and, and bridge that divide of all this ocean between us, um, through theater. So, yeah, I think, I guess every, you know, every actor has a different way of preparing. Every every Native actor has a different way of preparing. I, I don't know what, that every Native actor does what I do. I think I, for me, because I'm playing a real woman, um, and we are also, we use a mask on stage in shadow that's of a rougarou, which is a... Um, um, the what it's considered sort of the bastardized French of Lucarou, which would be a werewolf, and um, it's a creature that was seen um, around Pine Ridge before the uprising in the seventies, and when all these people were seeing it, they went to some elders on the on the reservation there, and the elders said um, it's a sign that a revolution is coming and it's coming to wounded knee. And at first everybody was like, what? You know, like really? Cause it was just that far, that much farther away from realized being realized. Um, so because we're also using that mask and we're using we have that, the, you know, it's hard to embody 
a character like that Graham Murky has to embody that that creature every night and I know that we're safe and I know that we're protected but I think you know you can't you just have to be respectful of the reality of of what it means to when you're mixing those elements of theater and spirit because spirits come to theater <laughs> spirits live in theater and they love theater and so I, you know, I, for me, it was just a matter of like, we did a blessing today of the space, which was really important and really grounding. And I knew I was like, okay, I know we're good to go. I know we're good to go. And, uh, and yeah, so the other stuff I do for, for, for my own grounding, but on sort of on behalf of the bigger picture so that we're all included in, in those prayers, you know. Michelle St. John, one of the actors in Annie Mae's movement, Graham Murky takes the other role in the play. As you're about to hear, we had an interesting conversation about his experience as an Indigenous who looks white. My father's an Ojibwe man from uh, Manitoba, which is like right in the middle of Canada. Um, technically, as far as, you know, you know, the government goes, um, I, call, I, I am a Métis person, although um, there's not a lot of French in my you know, Métis is a combination of it's a history. The history of the Métis people in Canada is the um, the French uh, voyageurs, you know, um, meeting the uh, Cree or Ojibwe women in in the in the, um, so mixed blood is their histories, and uh, they've developed their own identity and whatnot, and they're they've been recognized as uh, Indigenous peoples. And so I I qualify as a member of the Manitoba Métis Federation, although my father is an Ojibwe man. It's just because my father didn't marry another Indigenous woman. I'm they didn't, couldn't pass his status down onto me technically, and it's, but uh, uh, so I inherited a lot of my mom's traits, obviously. But uh, certainly, uh, my father's an Ojibwe man, which uh, makes me an Indigenous person in Canada. So, what was your experience of growing up Indigenous? Uh, well, that's a, a, a question that um, I didn't grow up Indigenous, unfortunately, uh, because my father and his mother, who are Indigenous, didn't really grow up. In the, within the community. Um, my grandmother had married, you know, uh, a farmer, and so she grew up outside of, you know, the Indigenous community. So there's not a lot of connection through my family. Um, my connection through the Indigenous community has come over the last 10 years when I started, you know, when I, when I, when I started, I, you know, when I started uh, researching my, my heritage a bit more and then uh, working in Indigenous theatre. So my relationships with the community has come through the storytelling aspect and the, and the Indigenous theatre companies that I've worked through. Um, I feel more connected to the community than my father has, again, because he didn't grow up connected to it. He's a bit disconnected. So um, his identity, he doesn't necessarily identify, um, you know, within with the community, but uh, I certainly do now that I've had a chance to, you know, reconnect with it and become a part of it. So... Um, so growing up, I didn't, uh, and also because I'm not, you know, not a visible, I'm not visibly a minority. So, you know, I fit in, I guess, and nobody, even now, you know, when, when you talk to people about working in indigenous theater and whatnot, they go, Oh, are you, are you, are you indigenous? Yes, 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 I am. It's, it's okay. (laughs) So identity has been a challenge for me in the past how many years, but, uh, certainly, uh, it wasn't as if I had a, I didn't face like racism or anything like that growing up or any hardships like that. I grew up outside the community and I've only really become connected in the past 10 years or so. We had a talk back in Canada and this was a great question was um, one of the first questions we got asked by a student in a talk back was, 
this question is for you, Graham. Um, as a Caucasian, how do you feel playing Indigenous or Aboriginal characters? And I was like, that's a great question um, because I know you identify with me visually right away as a Caucasian, but that's an assumption just by, by looking at me. And um, that isn't, you know, I play I play white characters uh, and I can play white characters because I happen to be white on my mom's side. And I also play Aboriginal characters, and I can play Aboriginal characters because I'm also Aboriginal on my father's side. So my identity is a mixed race. And um, it was just one of those things where we as a society or whoever or wherever, you know, where, where you're from, you want you, you visually identify. We identify with people visually, right? And it's so it wasn't like – it wasn't wrong of her to say that, but it kind of was at the same time, you know, because it's like you aren't who you appear to be necessarily, mm. And sometimes I, whoever I appear to be isn't who I am. And, and I think that's true of anybody. When people judge you or assume they know who you are just by the way you look, um, they're forgetting that you're more than that. I mean, that's where, that's, you know, that's where some of our complications come from is like just by the way you see someone, you assume they're a certain way. Like even if you see a homeless person on the street um, and you think, well, they must be a drug addict, drug addict or, or um, stupid or whatever, you know. And some of them are quite brilliant. Some of them have university degrees. You know, some of them are doctors and whatnot. And, you know, I mean, I'm not saying all of them are, you know, but just by seeing someone visually, you don't know them until you meet them, you know. And um, I think we forget that sometimes. I think we forget to, that we're always more than what we appear to be. And I guess it also shows just how, um, how shaped we are by what somebody looks like. Yeah, as a, as a society, eh? Yeah, I mean, and I think I think we're I don't think I think anyone's exempt from it. I think I no. I love to think that oh you know I don't do it or you know certain people don't do it, but we all do it. Yeah, we all we, do. We all do. We're, none of us are exempt from it. We do see people, we make assumptions about them, and then we get to know them. We realize oh, I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I thought this way about this person before I ever got to know them. And then you get to know them and they're totally different than you thought they were. But you make those initial judgments, whether it's visually or, you know, or like they happen to come from, you know, they come from money. So you just assume, well, they must be this kind of person. And it's like, no, they're not. You know, it's just like little things and, you you know, we all do it. We all just want to, like, figure them out before we've had a chance to. I mean, I know um, for African-American actors, for instance, um, they often feel, and I'm sure this is this is the case for anyone who visually looks a certain ethnic way, is they often feel hemmed in by certain by certain roles. Mm. You know, like um, for instance, I I think I can remember Denzel Washington saying, "Oh no, it wasn't. No, maybe it was Samuel L. Jackson saying, you know, um, you know, why can't the Godfather be black? <laughs> you know, all that yeah. sort of stuff." Yeah. No, that's that's uh, certainly um, certainly in film too, especially, right? Like film is such a visual medium um, that I know a lot of ethnic actors, uh, friends of mine or whatnot. It's like a friend of mine, she's Asian in Toronto and like, she, she, you know, she goes out to auditions and it's always the same, you know, she always sees the same actors because it's like they're looking for an Asian actor. Like you, you would have seen in the short film we yeah, saw last night, yeah. take three. Yeah, exactly. I was watching that and I thought of my friend Grace back home because it's like she must face that every, you know, nearly every audition they go to, you know, can you do your Asian accent? <laughs> you know, and you know, we dated for a while. And we always tease each other, you know, about my yeah. indigenous heritage and her Chinese heritage, yeah. and, and that's the kind of things you can do. Um, you can do with, with each other, you know, and you know, but you can do with indigenous. Yeah. I mean, that you can do with other ethnic groups. 
you can do it with your friends and stuff, people that you're comfortable with and you know that, you know, you're having a laugh. But, uh, you know, when you go into an audition and someone says, you know, can you sound more Chinese? You know, like how, how I can't imagine what that's like. I mean, I don't get that because I because I look I visually when I go into a film audition, they're not looking for an indigenous character. In fact, if I went in, in fact, if I went to an audition um, for an indigenous character in film, they'd be like, um, who sent you? You know, because they'd be like, no, we want an indigenous character for this. I'm like, well, I'm indigenous, but, but you don't look... But your like, hair's short. <laughs> your hair's short. It's blonde. you got blue eyes. You know, your skin is so pale. You don't belong on, st- on screen as an as a indigenous person. So I will never get cast in film as, as an indigenous person. Uh, and I just accepted that. You know, like, that's the way film is, and it's, not, it's unfortunate. But, you know, until someone writes a story about... Yeah about someone specific like me that doesn't look indigenous but is then i could play that character but not on screen you know they want the the hollywood indian you know the one you know that's what they want you know for graham murky's father growing up looking more indigenous than his son made for a different experience it would have been something that he was ashamed of admitting right so if he could pass off as not you know it would not be something that he'd be sharing with people or being like oh no i yeah my mother you know my mother is a is an Ojibwe woman you know it's something he would have probably downplayed and even to this day i don't think it's not something he's ever been able to connect to just because of that disconnect and you know which again makes it more even more important for me to be able to identify with it and kind of reclaim that you not not for him but on behalf of him right it's like something that he didn't get a chance to embrace because of you know you know the histories and struggles that you face and and the, the histories in Canada of indigenous peoples there's the that tension between the dominant culture and and the indigenous culture and i think for him um it's it's certainly a challenge to to embrace that identity so for me it's become even more important that way because i see him as an ojibwe man that has had that stripped of him that has a potential identity a potential culture uh, taken away from him mm-hmm. through outside factors and self uh, self-loathing or you know not not accepting of it so um because it's easier to live in the dominant world right so i think uh clearly yeah clearly that's what he faced and even to this day even though he is you know he he recognizes his his culture and his well it's not his culture but his background and where he came from um he doesn't have a connection to it which you know kind of breaks my heart in a way because it's like it's such a rich such a rich history and culture. And it's who you are. And it's who we are, exactly. And the fact that, you know, like, in a way, I wouldn't say ashamed, but that's not the right word, but I, you know, he's certainly not, hasn't embraced it. Like, I'd like to see him embrace it. Yeah, well, he also, I think, has, it seems like, I've, every once in a while I hear him talk about how um, when he goes to the reserve or whatever, and because um, he's a truck driver, right? So sometimes he drives through a reserve and he'll fill up with gas, and in you know, and you show them your um, your uh, your treaty card, and you don't pay taxes as as an Aboriginal person in Canada. So he'll show them the treaty card, so he won't pay the taxes on the on the gas, and then he says, "Oh, well, sometimes they give you dirty looks, like." what do you have a treaty card for? And again, I don't know how much of that is, you know, self-imposed. Again, it's him, like, does he just not feel comfortable in his own skin so that he feels everyone suspicious of him because he didn't grow up with that identity? Is he feeling like, I know I have this right to this card and to these, you know, these Aboriginal rights that you know, we're given in Canada, but then because he doesn't, I think because there might be a bit of guilt because he doesn't feel like he actually connects to it, like maybe he doesn't feel he deserves it. Um, and so maybe there's a bit of, like, that you know, self-denial or whatever, but, uh, you know, that's, that's, a, so he also, again, does not, he always, he, he isolates himself from that community too. Cause I think he feels that they're, they don't want to accept him 
and then other people don't want to accept like you know the dominant culture doesn't want to accept him because he's a little he's a little brown he's a little different uh and then the other culture the brown culture doesn't want to accept feel he feels anyways perceives it as they don't want to accept him because he's not brown enough um so i don't know i feel really like for me that's an issue like i my dad is you know you know going to be 60 years old in a couple years so it's not something i don't think he's ever going to be able to reclaim at this point you know so for me again that's why it's been so important for me in the past 10 years it's like it is who we are and um it's important not to lose that especially indigenous cultures in canada i mean it's like it's what canada was before any european settlers came so it's more you know like my mom will be like well you know you're also scottish you know on my mom's side and it's like yes i understand that but i don't think the scottish heritage is in any danger you know of being forgotten graham murky let us keep close together, not far apart. Ko Jason Takare Aho. Kia ora Jason, ko marae rakuraku tēnei, he mihi mahana ki nga kai kōrero i tēnei wiki. Kia Michelle St. John Rato, ko Graham Murky, ko Timmy Anderson, ko Bob Young, he mihi atu ki a kouta katoa. Hei a tērā wiki i te iwi, nau mai hoki mai anō ki a te ahi kā, mai te ahi kā ki a tātou katoa, mauri ora.